And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie, and welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're reading Girls Burn Brighter by Shoba Rao. Where are we reading up to? Because we're doing this episode in two parts. Yeah, we're reading up to page 202, which is a little bit past the halfway point of this book, but thematically is sort of at a turning point for our two characters. Okay, so what would you identify as the themes for this first half of the book, Miss Mags? So this is a book, I think the first sentence on the back of the book really says it best. This is a book about Purnima and Savitha. They have three strikes against them. They're poor, they're ambitious, and they're girls. So it's really about these two girls who, in their late teens, form an extremely deep soulmate friendship bond with each other and are able to use that strength to, I guess find their own inner light to combat a world that does not see them as being fully human for the fact that they're girls and especially for the fact that they live in poverty. And the book is really, really dark and based off of true stories that Rao collected doing 15 years of research for this book. So it's really, I think, a testament to the fact that the strength of women is and can be unshakable in the face of dehumanization and extreme circumstance and in some cases extreme violence. Yeah, I think that's a really good assessment of this book and what we've seen thus far. What were your initial thoughts? I know that this is your second read. My first impression of the book, what I remember from reading it, I think like three years ago, was... Really, I think this was one of the first books that I read that for me really highlighted the plights of women around the world and the fact that a lot of the feminism that at the time I'd been consuming was really US centric. And this was one of the books that really made me interested in moving outside of my own lens in the sense of by country, if that makes sense. I had already, I think, been really working towards and I'm continuing to work towards because it's a journey, not a destination. Thinking about my feminism as inclusively and equitably as possible. But at the time, it had been really home-based, kind of based. And so for me, that was the big highlight of this book. And I remember it being really sad. And I remember it being a really hard read. But for me, one that was like pivotal and important. Now on my second read, I'm struck by the ways in which there are still moments of light and beauty throughout this book, even when things are really, really dark and really, really hard that primarily come through the friendship and bond that these two girls have formed with each other. Even when they haven't seen each other in years, they still both use the other's memory as sort of the light that guides their way. And also, I think the small pleasures that they are 
able to take in life, the beauty of a banana and how a banana can change your day around, which sounds so simple, but I think is really easy to get lost in what feels like this bigger narrative of just like big bad shit that's happening. But it's such an important reminder that life isn't all terrible all the time, even when awful things are happening to you. There are places where you can find light and it's important to cherish those. So I think that that's kind of my two separate reactions to the story. What about you? I know that this is your first time reading it. How have you been feeling about it so far? Well, when I first started reading, I really wanted it to be gay, which is a common harmony theme. And I guess in general, you kept on posing it as a really dark book. And the place where we ended in particular is incredibly dark and some incredibly dark things happen. But for me, it didn't feel... So far, I'm only halfway through. For me, it hasn't felt like darkness has been overwhelming, I guess. And I think that it speaks a little bit to what you were just talking about in terms of all of these moments of light. It does feel inherently hopeful. And the writing's just really beautiful. And I guess in terms of feminism, I mean, I've read other narratives from women that weren't in the US. And none of this really surprises me, but I do wonder... I think like a constant little thing that was in the back of my head is what decade is this written in? The book starts in 2001. 2001. Okay. Because while this is possible, I'm sure, in like many Indian villages, because India is a big country, I know that India as a, as a country and as a nation has been really advancing more progressively on the feminist front in about the last decade or so. So I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it beyond that. But it's good. And I enjoy it. Yeah, that's totally fair. That's totally fair. I think it's also possible, you know, I was describing this book from a place of not having read it from three, you know, four, three years. And I think sometimes when you're reading a book that deals with heavy and traumatic topics, that's what stands out to you later. But this reread really makes me shift my thinking around it. Because you're right, it is an ultimately hopeful book even right now we're in a dark place where we just ended but these girls just have such self-reliance and they teach each other so much about their own light and like what it means to find strength within yourself that it feels really hard I think to feel hopeless even in the darkest times which I think is a really impressive feat as well by the author because there are moments in which our characters feel hopeless. Savita, part of what makes the moment that we find her in at the end of this 202nd page so dark is that she went through a period where she felt really hopeless. She's stuck in a human trafficking ring and she's about to be sent to the US and she's being forcibly drugged. And in the middle of this experience, she loses herself and she loses her drive. And she's just kind of in some ways resigned herself to what's happened to her. But she's able to come back to herself eventually and not let that darkness overtake her and start to make a plan. And even though her plan takes great sacrifice to the point where in order to escape her situation or feel like she has a better chance to escape her situation, she is about to undergo an amputation so that she can be more attractive to a buyer. And she accepts this as something she feels like she has to do, which I feel like is really difficult to read as an outsider, as an outside reader in this perspective, right? Because I would never want to say that, you know, it's good that she's able to persevere through this moment. What she's going through is horrendous and something no one should ever have to live through. But it's also 
nice to read a narrative about a woman who's in an impossible situation who refuses to give up simultaneously. And I think that that's the part where you just have so much respect and admiration and hope for these main characters. And as much as they're ambitious and they want to succeed, you feel every ounce of that with them through the entire way. Yeah, it really, the world that we're presented in treats women like slaves. And the subjugation of our main characters so far has just gotten worse and worse. So it's it feels inherently hopeful that they refuse to be completely broken or completely owned, even if they succumb sometimes to that mentality. They are their, their own people. And no matter what happens to them, they insist that they themselves have worth. And that doesn't come from anywhere else in their society except for like themselves and then their their friendship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so much of their story, I think especially Pornima's story at the beginning ends up being about almost how to show to others that she has worth and that she's worth the respect that she's assigned herself. And frankly, that doesn't go very well for her. She's trapped in a loveless and abusive marriage where she's not only being abused and raped by her husband, but also by almost his entire family as well, whom she lives with, to the point where after she sort of breaks a final straw with them, he and his mother pour scalding oil over her to scar her and essentially be able to get rid of her out of the household. But she still has her own fuel and she still has her own drive. And it's after this moment where she's hit her lowest personally that she says, I'm not going to take this. And she goes and she goes off to find Savitha, which starts her on a whole other kind of journey where she's got to make some really tough choices that are sometimes kind of problematic, but a lot of times driven out of desperation. And she's able to pull that out of this self-worth. And I think also out of a sense that when she's given opportunities, she knows that she's capable to rise to them. She becomes an accountant by essentially sneakily leaning over her husband's paperwork and figuring out what he was up to. And she becomes a really good accountant and is really good and is able to rise to those challenges. And they're just really, I don't know, like whole and well-rounded characters. And something that really strikes me about this book is a quote that Rao said herself, which is that in a lot of ways, this book is about, quote, gender and poverty. There is no end to how deeply and disturbingly these two elements alone determine the fate of a life. And in one sense, I think that this book really plays on those themes. But in another sense, she's given us two characters who subvert those expectations and kind of say fuck you to the boundaries that are placed upon them and it's really really difficult and really awful to do that but they're also able to yeah I think that's an important distinction that you just made because I think one of the narratives we in the U.S. in particular struggle with is this idea that anyone can get themselves out of a situation if they have enough determination and will. And a part of this story being so beautiful is the fact that the main characters do have so much determination and will. But what you said there is the fact that they're able to. I think sometimes stories like this end up falling into a trap where all of the characters who aren't able to get themselves out of these situations are somehow lesser than because they weren't able to rise above. I don't feel like I'm getting that from this book, but I just wanted to point out 
your word, your word choice there. I also want to talk a little bit about some context that you brought up earlier in terms of why Rao decided to write this book and how she interviewed people. I'd like to know more about that. Why in particular this book? Because she's was born in India, but then she's lived most of her life in San Francisco since she was a child. So do you know the motivator? Yes, she moved here at age seven. She, I don't know what started these interviews necessarily. It sounded to me like the research came first and that the book sort of wrote itself out of that, you know, she spent so much time talking to women. And she always says she talks to domestic violence victims and victims of human sex trafficking of all genders, but they're primarily women and they're primarily girls. And she just really, I think, wanted to, from what I could gather, bring these issues to light. And I think also to humanize too, because I think that what you were talking about with the idea of being able or not able to is really important because so much of it is based being able or not able is a lot of times not based on one's personal willpower. Like you were saying, it's based on a whole host of things, including all of these boxes that society puts you in and the ways in which hierarchy is designed to keep you down, no matter what culture in the world you come from. And I think that a lot of what she was trying to do was shed light on the lives of women. I've got a a quote here that she gave from an interview with a blog called deaddarlings.com. And I can just read this to you. And I think that it gives a little bit more context about what she was up to. So the question was, writing Girls Burn Brighter had to be an act of love, love for the characters, for their story. How much did you write from what you knew versus from research? And what parts were the most personal and or the hardest to convey? And Rao responds, I've had a lifelong preoccupation with the lives of women, how they are conducted, how they are controlled, how they dwell in known and unknown powers. I also worked for many years with survivors of domestic violence, and the stories that these women, and nearly all of them were women, told me were astonishing. Each day in these women's life, marked as they were by continual acts of violence, was a testament to the human will to endure, and to our unimaginable capacities for resilience, reinvention, and generosity. I didn't have to look much beyond these everyday survivors to understand the lives of my characters. As for what was most personal, all of it, I want to believe that Purnima and Samitha, no matter what they went through, felt me beside them. Because I certainly, during the writing and even today, feel them beside me. Wow. Okay, well thank you for that context, Miss Maggie. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I think that's something else that's interesting that I think really plays into what you and I were just talking about, about the fact that even at its darkest moments, this book feels hopeful, is that while lots of people characterize this book as have, as being unhappy and potentially having an unhappy ending, Rao herself doesn't, she believes that she's written a happy story, quote, I mean, here are two girls driven to near annihilation by the world, by overwhelmingly malevolent forces, and yet they persevere. They find beauty in the smallest things, a banana, a piece of cloth, the scent of a river. They retain their capacity for love and friendship and human goodness. And they rise. They are determined to rise. I can't think of a happier story. So I think that so much of what you and I are sort of struggling to articulate about why this book feels 
hopeful, even in its toughest moments, sort of comes from that author intention there of saying that these stories are based on the stories of real women who have whole and wholesome lives, even when they are marred by acts of violence. And you can't just break down victims and survivors of terrible acts to the terrible things that have happened to them, because there's so much more to their stories. And I feel like for me, this book is really, really gets at that, gets at those other parts. That's beautiful, Maggie. I hadn't thought about that before. I think, yeah, I think that we so often fall into a trap. I mean, like even in the news industry, I don't know if it's changed now, but just a few years ago, I wasn't allowed to write survivor. You wrote victim. You you differentiated the offender or the defendant and the victim. And I think that the way we focus on women's trauma tends to be a narrative of victimhood to the point where sometimes women themselves probably adopt that, that narrative. But I feel like that is an inherently disempowering narrative, right? Because it does reduce you to just these acts that were forced upon you, right? And that's not who you are. So yeah, I guess it goes back to that idea of self-worth that makes this so, so meaningful. Because against all of the odds, these girls are able to claim some sort of self-worth, which is hard. I mean, like, I'm a woman in Western society and the 2020s, and it's still hard for me to claim my own self-worth. So I can't imagine what it would be like if I had faced extreme violence or if I lived in a society that told me that I was worthless. It is so difficult. And I think it's something that we see our characters really struggle with. Right at the beginning of the book, Rao sets up this metaphor. I guess it's not that far at the beginning, but it's on like page 50. So relatively at the beginning. Savita tells Purnima a story about an elephant who finds the last lagoon, essentially, in a world that no longer has rain. And the elephant assigns a crow to guard that lagoon so that no one but the elephant can drink from it. And the crow fails in that mission, so the elephant eats it whole. But because the elephant eats it whole, the crow is able to peck its way out of the inside of the elephant and cause damage. And what the characters say was Purnima looked at her. What about the rain, she said. The rain? Did it come back? Did it fill the lagoon again? The rain doesn't matter. No? No. But what about, that doesn't matter either. It doesn't? No, Savitha said. Here's what matters. Understand this, Purnima. That it's better to be swallowed whole than in pieces. Only then you can win. No elephant can be too big. Only then, no elephant can do you no harm. So we've got this beginning ideology set up here with the idea that staying whole is a way that you can fight and a way that you can tell your story and a way in which you're able to fight back from the inside of the belly of the beast. But then we play with that as the story goes on and as these girls feel like they lose parts of themselves. So then it ends this section that we started with Savitha on page 201. The operation was scheduled to take place two days later, but was then moved up to the next day. Less time to change my mind, Savitha thought. Regardless, she she lay in bed all the night before, cradling her left hand, letting it wander over the ridges of her body. How can they take a hand? How can a hand be taken, she wondered. 
The palm, the fingers, the crescent moons at the tips. The warmth of blood beneath the skin already curtailed, lost. The ends of a body as beautiful as its beating center. She decided in that movement, resolutely lying in bed, no, I won't do this, I won't let them. But then she gazed into the dark of the room, into the dark oblivion of her waiting sisters, their waiting dowries, and knew she would. Knew she had to. She would let them buy it. Her hand. She had nothing left to sell. So we're starting to play, I think, with the metaphor of what it means to actually be whole and what it means to be whole inside, but feel like you have to sell off a piece of yourself and where your power goes in those moments in a way that I think is really interesting and compelling. That is very interesting and compelling. I want to, Savitha and Pornima are the only people in this book so far that seem whole. And I really want to explore with you some of the motivations, perhaps, behind people like Pornima's father or the woman in Pornima's new household when she's with her husband. Because it's such cruelty that I can't really identify with it. And I don't have it figured out because it seems... It seems unreasonable that only our main characters are people who are able to like own their self-worth. And I feel like self-worth for some reason is attached to the cruelty that is Pormina and and Savitha are both subjected to. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I feel like this plays again on the idea of hierarchy in the sense that hierarchy is always trying to turn us against everyone else. Because even with at least up until this point in the novel, the male characters that we've seen acting with such cruelty are also, if you're looking at the entire sort of societal uh, structure sort of at the bottom for whatever reason. Except for maybe Guru. Yeah, except for maybe Guru. But he works in human trafficking. I feel like he's got some sort of skeleton. <laughs> but like when we're talking about the family characters, right? Characters that you would maybe expect in a narrative to have some more empathy and, and self-worth who aren't necessarily the stereotypical villains. Pranima's father is extremely poor and he's alone and he's been raised in a society to essentially hate women and treat them like objects and like burdens. And we see, I think, a lot of his cruelty be born out of that. And then we turn to her mother-in-law and sister-in-law, who in her new house, along with her husband, are sort of the three main purveyors of their cruelty. And I have a quote in here somewhere that I think sort of ends up summing at least part of it up. For Pranima's husband, he only has a couple of fingers on one of his hands, which is dealt with in the book. I think probably the way that Pornima would actually think about it in real life, but it isn't very kindly. He's he's viewed as, as being much lesser because of the fact that he's missing fingers and Pornima is actually disgusted by him. So I think that a lot of his cruelty comes from I think this idea of what he should have been owed and then what he got or what was taken from him, he feels a very big sense of loss of what could have been, I think, in a way that I think men are often trained to think that the world owes them some things. And because of that, that extends out to his family who hid him away for the entire kind of bride process and picked Pornima partially because they thought she would be easier to cow because she's not modern. They call her a country bumpkin. She's not modern. But the the society that they're in thrives on the idea that 
these women and her new family right now feel more power when they're able to cast Pornima down. And I think something interesting is that Pornima at the very end, right before her mother-in-law burns her with oil, has this moment where she realizes the fact that she doesn't actually think she wants to be a mother because thinking about mothers, they only ever have chances to do things for others. Even her mother-in-law, who's like this terrible, awful, cruel woman to her, she's never seen her have a moment to herself or do anything for herself. All of these things she's doing are for her her two children. And even her own mother, who she thinks of with so much love and respect and misses terribly, she realizes her mother never did anything for herself either. It was always for others. So I think we've got two different types of characters and their cruelty here we've got men to a certain extent who believe they're owed a certain level of privilege and respect and accolade and who don't have it for one reason or another and to take that out on the women in their lives and then we've got cruel women who use whatever power they do have to inflict cruelty onto another woman but are also never given a moment to develop their self-worth i think to answer your question their whole life is in service and servitude of others mostly male characters but for mothers also their daughters sometimes too and it never gives a person a chance to i think develop something whole for themselves when we see them live their lives in this way and i think savita and pornima have each other they have this special bond that is just for them that isn't in service of anyone else that makes them feel good. And that's so much, I think, of what helps them develop as characters. Yeah, sorry, that was probably a a long-winded way to answer your question, but I had to talk myself into that answer. No, I understand. I have a few thoughts. So I'm going to backtrack to the first one where we were talking about Pornima's dad. So one of the crucial things about this book is poverty. That's a running theme. And I don't think that he just hates women out Right. I think that there is definitely hatred for women, but I think the motivating factor for his hatred or it it feels more like a burden, like women are a burden to him. Daughters are a burden because they don't make as much money. And I think that's a theme that extends to Pornima's husband's family as well, even though they are wealthier. One of the reasons they hate her so much is because her father won't pay her dowry in the amount that they expect. And that's because they've gotten like some sort of debt going on for their business. I don't know. What were you going to say, Maggie? Oh, I was just going to say, it's not that he won't pay it. It's that he can't. By the time Pornima gets married, he is essentially so desperate to get her out of the house that he accepts this marriage on her behalf. And when they change the dowry requirements at the very last minute, it's too late to back out, even though he can't afford it. Yeah, the whole thing is bullshit, though. But yeah, there is this underlying theme that all of these characters feel. It's not even just like entitlement. They're not capable of living full lives because of this money power structure. And I would say that extends, yeah, even to the the wealthier family because they're they're so desperate because they have debt. And then... The second thing I wanted to talk about is this idea of wholeness that you kept bringing us back to and that we've been circling around over and over again. This this wholeness in this book is directly related to girlhood, it seems. That's what they position it as. And they talk about that when both Pornima and Savitha are in the brothel and they're noticing the other girls that don't have lights in their eyes. They've lost their girlhood is something that Pornima describes it as. And Savitha later identifies this as well and 
says that we're all children waiting to die or we're all old women who've lived countless lives. So I don't know how I feel about that, though. Like, how do we feel about the concept of girlhood equaling wholeness? Because I feel like when we see that appear in other works of literature, it often has to do with virginity. And this book, I think, is very careful not to do that specifically. Savitha even says at one point that if poor Nima's dad had just asked whether she wanted to have sex, it would be different for her. So they're not necessarily shaming the fact that these girls lost their virginity without wanting to lose their virginity because neither of them really had much of a choice. But this idea of like wholeness and its relationship to childhood or girlhood in particular feels really relevant to me, especially because the book's name is Girls Burn Brighter. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're posing a lot of really interesting questions that not to bullshit my way out of this. I think that at this point in the book, you're right, it is really connected to girlhood. I think especially because we're following two very young women kind of at this point in the book. I do kind of want to circle back to it next week, though, because from what I remember, the end of the book transcends beyond that. We're being set up for this idea of what wholeness looks like. And then at the end of the book, we have a much different view of it. So I think you're right in that right now it is in some ways being really equated to girlhood and to the friendship that they've created there, even if it's not necessarily innocence in the sense of virginity. But from what I remember at the end, we've got a much different... But the way it's presented in this book, even if it it changes in the end, like let's dig a little bit deeper into that because this is something we see throughout literature all the time, right? There's the idea of Artemis, who is the Holy Virgin. And I know that on a personal level, it took me a while, and this could just be because I'm a millennial, to like consider myself a woman proper, despite my age or development. And I think that that still exists within our societal structure, like yours and mine at the very least, this idea of girlness equaling innocence, A, that's a big one, and innocence somehow relating to wholeness and unity. Yeah, I guess the points in this book where I feel like I push up against that, though, to a certain extent, come from this idea that Savita, at the very least, wants to use her wholeness as a weapon, right? She sees the injustice that's being done. She, in many ways, is one of the real enlightening factors to Purnima about the injustice that's being done in multiple ways. Purnima, like, sees it before she meets Savita, but has kind of accepted it and just resigned herself to the idea that this is what life will look like for her. And Savita is able to open her eyes into other ways of living and also gives Pranima kind of a reality check in the sense of where she actually lives in her societal structure as far as class goes. But Savita's wholeness, I don't think comes from innocence. I think in, in her case, it comes from being awakened to reality. And that's where she's able to find her light and her wholeness. I think the parts of reinforce the girlhood aspect are the fact that we're talking about two girls who are friends at the beginning and their friendship, I think, sometimes feels very wholesome and innocent. But I don't think that the book flattens it to just to just that. No, I think that's very interesting too. So it's it feels almost a little bit subversive. In that way, because these girls are discovering their light through knowledge. And it also, I don't have scholarly sources on this, so forgive me, but there's a whole school of thought that when we see the word virgin in 
really early classical works like Greek literature, it actually just does mean wholeness and that there may have been stories about various virgin goddesses you know, going out and having sex. And that same sort of mentality rings true for the Bible too, under the school of thought. So it feels almost, I don't know, like Athena was a virgin goddess and Athena is the goddess of knowledge. It feels connected to me somehow. It feels both subversive, but also more true to what our understanding of girlhood is traditionally, if we go way, way back. Yeah, I can see that. I don't think I have enough information on the etymology of virgin to offer any more insight on that specific point but I can see I think the parallels that you're that you're drawing I think too I mean if we're talking about the idea of sex and virginity as innocence too I think there's also something complicated that ends up happening because to a certain extent part of the loss of innocence that happens when Pornima's father assaults Savitha rapes Savitha is it's not Savitha no longer being a virgin, right? That's what people in the village try and make it out to seem as being. But almost the greater loss of innocence is for Pornima looking at her father differently and saying, whoa, you know, I, I, I didn't think that you were capable of such cruelty, you know? So I think that that's also an interesting way that this all gets subverted. And I think Pornima gains even more knowledge and less innocence when she gets married, not because of the repeated violations of her body, but because she's literally learning over his shoulder. And she says at one point on page 134, And so as the stacks kept changing, with Kishore taking stacks back to work, bringing new ones, all the while completely unaware that Pornima was studying them, that she was learning from them, She began to see the world differently. She began to see it with a kind of clarity. There was what you owed, and there was what you could sell to pay off what you owed, and whatever was left, if there was anything left, was all that you could say was truly yours, all that you could truly love. So to me, this loss of innocence actually coincides, I think, more with a different kind of traditional trope of innocence, which is the idea of knowledge and things like that, and less of what was happening to their bodies at that time. But that's still complicated because so much of this book is about their bodies and whether they have control over what happens to them. I just don't think that that conversation is necessarily related to the girlhood innocence one in the way that we think about it in Western culture. You mean their bodily innocence or their bodily lack of control and autonomy? That's interesting. I want to also talk, you you touched a little bit about how for Pornima, it was the fact that her father was capable of this cruelty to Savitha. I also think for the both of them, it was a real awakening into the fact that they weren't safe anywhere, even in places where they were supposed to be loved, right? Because you're you're at your best friend's house. The dad has given you food. So you assume that you're in his good graces, I guess. Yeah, he was her employer. So in theory, there's supposed to be a, a contract there. I mean, there's no HR in this world, but... I guess it's this idea of, because for Savitha too, it's the fact that it's Pornima's father because she can see parts of Pornima in his face, right? So it's, it's like this betrayal of trust and this real realization for both of them that it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're family, the outside world isn't going to give them the love that they need. 
or give them the safety they need. Yeah. And I think in that way, the lack of safety is the greatest loss of innocence that we see. Because prior to this, Savita is determined that Pornim is not going to leave her and that they can kind of shake her marriage prospects to look uh, in such a way where they can both stay together. And this terrible act of violence against Savitha coincides with poor Nima understanding that this marriage is not what she and Savitha had hoped that it might be for the two of them. And that the idea of home being safety, no matter where you are, is a, a falsehood. Yeah, bright, cheery stuff. What else do you want to talk about in relationship to this half of the book, Mags? I guess something that I want to interrogate a little bit is the I think also the idea of naivete and innocence and stuff that happens because both girls get tricked to a certain extent by these human traffickers at the end of the section that we're in. And it's an interesting section, I think, because they're both at once taken in and wary of what's happening, but also both in such desperation that even though they have discovered that they're probably not in a safe situation, have to keep going for Pornima at least. Savita's literally drugged and kidnapped. So a little bit of a different scenario there. But even she initially had feels like she she had bamboozled herself with her first interactions with these kidnappers. But Pornima makes the desperate choice to work for them when she discovers that they aren't going to take her in as a sex slave essentially in order to find Savitha and so she works as their accountant and so she's keep keeping track of all of this but to me I don't I don't even know what there is to say about that but that choice just struck me as being really interesting because on the one hand it's like while you have great intentions you're now complicit in a terrible thing happening to dozens and dozens of other girls but then I also look at her and I'm like what choice does she have especially because once she gets to that point she knows probably too much right about what they're actually doing and I just I didn't I I still don't know how to feel about all of that not that it makes me upset with Pornima by any means but I just feel like there's stuff there to unpick and I don't know how to untangle it in my head I mean I think that if we're looking at this situation realistically like Pornima doesn't have any agency it would be one thing if you were yeah, like I can't judge her because she really does not have the agency to be judged. It'd be something if she was wealthy or had a husband even that, you know, wasn't hurting her. But she doesn't. She's been living in a train station. Her only goal has been to find Savitha. And I, to be honest, if that were me in that situation, I'd probably do the same thing. I don't think that there'd be any way I wouldn't because survival is a big instinct. And if that's my only objective to find somebody, right, because that's the only light I've known, the only prospect I have of a better future, then that would probably be me as well. I don't, I guess it's hard to blame people in power situations, even if they're complicit in it, if they really don't have many other options. Yeah, I think that that was more what I was trying to get at was that to me, this choice didn't say anything about poor Nima, but so illustrated how fucked the system she's living in is that you can be pushed to that level of desperation where that is your only option. She's essentially begging in a train station, waiting for 
a train track north to be built because she thinks that's where Savitha is initially, but it's been bombed. So she's got to wait for them to completely rebuild it. So it's not a judgment call against her. If I was in that situation, I probably would have done the same thing. It was more to say that to me, that choice as a writer really just emphasizes to me how the world is rigged in every single way against women specifically. And it's also, I think, a really difficult aspect of the system because in this really cruel twist of fate, her new injury, which was extraordinarily traumatic, in some ways saves her from a life of sex slavery because they decide that she's too ugly to sell, essentially, which what a fucking horrific concept. But all of this put together just paints this picture of a world that is so against women at all times and all turns that's like difficult to stomach and then to me that just brings it back to the fact that poor Nima and Savitha's choices to survive and to have that drive and to have that ambition and it's a choice every single day like it's in- it's a it's not ingrained into them they wake up and make that choice every day it just shows what resilience I think women have to have all over the world you know in India in the US when your system is so rigged against you you've got to get up and make that choice every single day to survive to attempt to transcend what life's been given you sometimes you can sometimes you can't but in the worst cases the cards are just stacked against you so intensely and it's hard to read about and it's hard to swallow i have a similar sort of feeling but also this is going to sound real real bad because obviously i am not living this situation but like that's kind of life isn't it right i don't know about all of you guys listening here but i wake up every day and i'm like yep it's still covid we're still trucking along like everyone's still doing their thing And obviously, that's a very different level of resiliency. But it's also that's the experience of most people who survive depression, right? You're waking up every day and you feel like shit and your mind is telling you that this isn't worth it, but you still keep going. And so it's these moments of beauty and these moments of brightness that make it worth it, even though the system is unfair and rigged. Because, you know, we're a podcast that wants to talk about revolution and change, but sometimes some things just are too big for individuals and like you don't have the power to change it right now. So all you can do is just keep trying and just keep making it another day. Yeah, and I think that that's the fuck you to the system, right? Is that when you're when you do that, and when you're, you're able to move past this, and like for these two girls being able to find such deep friendship and soulmateship with each other, that's the F you to the system who doesn't want you to have any of that beauty who doesn't want you to find wholeness and light within yourself. And holding on to that can be really hard, right? Which I think this book also showcases because at this point, these girls have been separated for two and a half years, I think almost three. And they still just have such unshakable faith in each other that they're able to persevere and continue to make that choice every single day. It's true. Do you have anything else you want to speak about? I do, but I think that they can wait till next week because I think they'll make more sense in the context of the whole story. Okay. All right. Wonderful. What is your homework this week, Maggie? My homework this week is to, I think, use the power that I can in my own society and situation right now to try and make change, specifically calling my representatives about the COVID bill and about the $15 minimum wage, which 
was struck down by somebody who's not even an elected official and that many Democrats have just let die and try and fight some of these injustices that we see play out, I think, much differently in Western society than we do in this book, but the themes are very similar. Yeah, that's that's my homework this week is to fight dumb representatives on their dumb decisions. My homework this week is not that big because I'm just trucking. I'm just trucking seven days a week. I don't have a lot of free time right now, so I'm just going to keep on trucking and do everything I can to make it better. And when I have time, I will give it to causes I deem worthy. Very nice. Very nice. What are you reading? I'm reading. So I'm still on Bridgerton. Did we talk about that yet that I started reading the Bridgerton books? I think we have on air. Yeah, we have. So I'm on the third one. They are deeply problematic, but this one actually isn't that bad. It is called An Offer from a Gentleman, and it's basically Cinderella. So there you go. What are you reading, Miss Maggie? I'm reading The Bone Shard Daughter by Andrea Stewart. Ooh, very nice. Very good. That sounds very fun. I like that. I love a lesbian fantasy. Give me more. Oh, okay. I definitely like it now. All right, my friends. Next week, we are reading the second half of this wonderful book from page 203 until the end. Or page 202 if you have my copy, because my page ended at 201. So I think that the last chapter we had was from Savitha's perspective, and she's about to go through her surgery. And that's that's our cliffhanger. So whatever copy that is for your book. Yep, yep, that's that's where we're ending. All right, I think I think that's it for this episode then. All right, goodbye folks. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm/rgbc and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter. And you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.